And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and the man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them and he prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him and one another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. All flesh is grass and all its beauty like the flower of the field. And I will uh, acknowledge with everyone, it sure seemed like she read an introduction there that went with a, a previous sermon series that we were doing. Um, so uh, as we're, we're studying God's sovereignty today, family. And so we celebrate God's sovereignty in times of difficulty, but times of embarrassment, it's hard to believe that God's in control of everything, isn't it? So um, publicly, I apologize for sending you the wrong introduction. <laughs> we're continuing our series in Mark of the Passover plan, right? And we're going to see a, a beautiful reality today that all of life is going according to God's divine plan and working towards God's divine purposes. Uh, we are going to be digging deep into Mark chapter 14. I invite you to keep it open. And as you open your Bibles or your phones to that, I want to uh, let you know, I looked at a couple of lists of the most used words of 2020. I looked at the global language monitor. Did you know it exists? It does. There's a couple of other ones. And I don't know what words you would put on that list of that were most used in 2020, but I'm gonna give you a few of them. Some are very obvious, COVID, coronavirus, face mask, social distancing, flattening the curve. Others you might've forgotten, trade war, Zoom, I'm surprised Zoom was on there. I thought it would be a, it, it, can you hear me? Is this working? No, that didn't make the list. Black Lives Matter or BLM, mail-in ballot. It's a global leader, a, a global word index. And so the word Megxit was on there. That's the exit of Harry and Meghan from the royal family. Kobe Bryant, toilet paper. Yeah. Unprecedented. You know what words were not on there? According to plan. <laughs> God's sovereignty, his providence. As we continue our study in Mark, we come to a very refreshing reality. And that is the total sovereignty of God. We're going to see how everything is going according to plan. God's sovereign grace compels us to trust in him, not only with the burdens of our sin, but also with the burdens of our hearts. 
And we're going to work from the questions that we have through a series of divine direction and then divine promises. And then we're going to unpack some specific application for you and I. So before we go to the word of the Lord, will you join me in going to the Lord of the word in prayer? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the revelation of who you are. And we confess, Lord, that we have total inability to understand outside of your mercy. We ask that you would be pleased that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we could see you more clearly, that we might serve you more faithfully. Lord, help us to rightly divide your word. I feel the weight of this subject in our church family, in our community, even in our country and around the world. We ask that you'd speak to us freshly. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at verse 12, and we're going to see right from the beginning that there are questions that drive this discussion we'll have today. The disciples come to Jesus, and they ask him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? This question from the disciples is very practical, but it's reflective of questions that we have in our hearts for Jesus. When we look around our lives and see things that are out of control or we have certain struggles, uh, we have questions. We have questions about our finances. We have questions about our family. We have questions about our future what it holds or may not hold. We have questions about friendships. In these days of uncertainty, all of us can identify with the reality that we have questions. And the response of Jesus is remarkable. I'm going to say it's astounding. And it is absolutely unexplainable outside of the reality that Jesus is God. He is totally sovereign. He's in control of everything. Now, reading the Gospel of Mark, which I hope you have done. If you have not done so, I invite you to do it. It's 16 chapters. It'll take you a couple of hours. It'll be worth your time. But you see different demonstrations of the total sovereignty of Jesus. In Mark chapter 2, you'll remember when they dropped down the paraplegic from the roof, he knew the thoughts of the Pharisees who were judging him in his heart. You'll remember in Mark chapter 5 when he called out the demons from the demoniac, totally sovereign over that. You'll remember the story of Jesus calming the storm. The wind and the waves obeyed his voice. You'll remember in Mark chapter 9 and 10 when Jesus knew the discussion of his disciples who were following him from a distance. They were arguing over who was the greatest. And next week, we're going to look at the triumphal entry where we'll see uh, the total sovereignty of Jesus when he tells his disciples to go get the colt and untie it. Jesus is God. And he is Lord who is sovereign. And his response to the disciples' question invites us into the details of of discovering the power of this truth. Well, look, it's it's through a series of divine directions and divine predictions. Uh, Verse 13 is clear. Jesus responds to their question. He sent two of his disciples and said to them, look at this, direction, go into the city. That's his direction. Go into the city. Here's a prediction. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. (laughs) It's pretty specific, right? Not a woman carrying a jar of water, as to be expected, but a man's carrying a jar of water. Divine direction. Follow him. 
Where, where am I? Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, teacher says, where's my guest room? Where I may eat Passover with my disciples. That's some pretty specific direction. And then the prediction. He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepared for us. I don't know about you, but if I'm in the place of the disciples and Jesus gives this kind of specific direction, I'm like, right, right. You want me to walk into the city. I'm going to see a guy carrying in a jar. I'm supposed to follow him and go to some random house. And then whoever owns a house, I'm supposed to ask about the room that is already prepared for us to eat Passover. That's what Jesus tells them. And the disciples did it. Remarkably, we see in verse 16, the disciples set out and went to the city and found it, look, just as Jesus had told them. There is one very clear truth of many that come from this passage. Jesus was in charge. He knew exactly what was going to happen and how it was going to happen. He revealed this through a series of divine direction and divine predictions and promises. I wonder where you are in trusting Jesus's direction and his predictions, his promises. If you're like me, you probably offer, uh, operated a little bit of a deficit. Think about some popular ones. Divine direction, seek first the kingdom of God. Prediction, everything else will follow. Direction, when you give, give in secret. When you pray, Pray in your closet. Prediction. The Father who is in heaven will see you and reward you. Prediction. Or direction. Abide in my word. Prediction. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Direction. Come to me. Prediction. I will give you rest. Direction. Confess your sins. Prediction, I am faithful and just, and I'll forgive you of your sins and purify you of all unrighteousness. Do we trust the, the details of Jesus' direction and his prediction, the promises that are going to come? If you're like me, you operate at a deficit in that. But thankfully, the disciples listened to the divine direction, and they saw that the predictions of Jesus actually came to be fulfilled. Jesus was right in the small details of this narrative. And he has proven to be right in the larger, weightier portion of the passage. It was evening, verse 17, and he came together with the 12 in the upper room. Here's another uh, direction and prediction. As they were reclining at the table, Jesus says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Of course, the disciples who had uh, been with Jesus and had seen this amazing divine direction and prediction come fruit to fruition, believe this prediction. There will be someone at this table who will betray me. Now, Jesus knew what we've already read in Mark in this context. I'll read it to you again in chapter 14, 10 and 11, right before this passage. Jesus knew this, that Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to find a way to betray Jesus to them. 
And when they heard it, they were glad and they promised to give Judas money. And Judas sought an opportune time to betray him. Those are the two verses that came right before this. Jesus knew it. Jesus knew the prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 11, verses 12 to 13, that one would betray the Son of Man, selling him for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus knew the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 10, that it was the Lord's will to crush the suffering servant. Jesus knew it, and three times he had already taught on it. And the disciples had, had typically been in disbelief. You see that in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 37. Mark chapter 9, 30 to 32, and chapter 10, 29 to 31. Jesus was fully aware of what he was walking into. He was so powerful that he predicted it. And I want you to notice something when we read this narrative. We don't read the names of Judas. In fact, we don't know this as Judas except for the complementary gospel narratives. That together they full out, fill out a whole witness of what happened. But in this narrative, we're invited into the focus. And that is the sovereignty of God and that someone close to Jesus would betray him. And the disciples themselves invite us into this tension and they ask, well, is it I? Am I the one that's going to betray you? Understanding that we all fall short, that we all have that capacity to betray or deny Jesus? And the specificity of Jesus in verse 20, look at this. Jesus said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Could you imagine the conviction of Judas's heart when his hand is in the dish with Jesus being passed? He knew he was exposed. And we'll talk more about that during Holy Week. But we need to sit in it a little bit now. Jesus trusted the sovereignty of the Father. So much so that he sat next to his betrayer. If I was Jesus, I would have used some sort of magic powers to turn him into like a fish or something to explode him and to show him who was really the boss. I don't know why I said fish. That's weird. But Jesus doesn't. He humbly goes. And look at verse 21. Jesus, the Son of Man, goes as it is written of him. Somehow Jesus totally trusted the revealed word of God. Do we? Do we trust the sovereignty of God on this level? I want to share a few pictures, just a few pictures of the revelation of God's word on the total sovereignty of God. In Ephesians 1.11, it says that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Not some things, all things. In Romans 8.28, it says that God is working all things for the good of his people and the glory of his name. In Proverbs 16.33, it says that every decision is from the Lord. In Genesis 50, 20, you remember the story of Joseph after he forgives his brothers and they're repenting. And Joseph says what the enemy intended for evil, God intends it for good. Isaiah 49, 46 verses 9 to 10. I'm, I'm going to, I don't have it with me. Mm. Uh, I'm going to read you that passage, 46, 9 and 10, because there's just no disputing it. And I'm, I'm going to ask you, if you believe it. 
Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to your mind. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. I alone say my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Psalm 103, 19, God rules over everything, not some things, not most things, everything. Proverbs 21, 1, God controls even the hearts of kings, all the rulers of our world. Matthew 19, 26, with God, all things are possible. In Romans 8, 35 to 39, nothing can separate God's people from his love. You see, Jesus is fully leaning into the revelation of God's written word. We do not understand all the mystery that surrounds the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humanity. But we do have his written word that we can trust. And we can know that everything is going according to plan, according to the eternal counsel of God and the revelation of his word. And this is highlighted even in the verses that we didn't read, that we will study further as Holy Week comes upon us. And that is the Passover, the ultimate fulfillment of the festival that celebrated the freedom of God's people from Egypt. Jesus is the center of that, the fullness of that. But the question I want to wrestle with now are questions of application. What does this passage mean for you and for me? Now, the first thing I want to ask is uh, this question. How do we trust God's sovereignty in a world of suffering? If God is really sovereign, why is there so much death? We take comfort in this teaching as we go through the pandemic with the coronavirus. We have hope as Christians, but what about all the people who have died? What about the hundreds of millions that have slipped into global uh, lowest levels of poverty, and children's, uh, children that have been uh, uh, lost access to education and health. What, what about that? What about the predators that have uh, had more opportunity to prey on people uh, online and, and around the poor parts of our, of our country and our world? Is God still sovereign? Well, Scripture is really clear. Yes, He is. And I wrestle with this question with people all the time. And I end up asking them a question in response at some point in the conversation. This question is, if you struggle with God being sovereign in light of all the suffering and struggles of this world, I would like for you to answer this question. How do we explain the suffering in this world and hope in it without the sovereignty of God? You see, every worldview has to answer the question, what's the problem? And every worldview has to offer a solution. What's a solution? And there is no worldview that answers the question of, of the problem of the suffering of this world with any sort of coherence with reality. In fact, it's confusing and even more discouraging. Really, is life totally purpose, purposeless? Really, are we just the survival of the fittest where nature is red and tooth and claw and the strongest person wins and that justifies all the suffering and struggle and oppression in the world? Are we going to have a totally naturalistic worldview or one that's completely void of any sort of transcendence? Is that your answer? No, it's not. It makes no sense. Only a biblical worldview gives us an eternal 
perspective. Only a biblical worldview orients the eyes of our heart to a God who himself entered into suffering, conquered suffering, rose from suffering, so that those who belong to him can have strength and hope in their suffering. You understand the historical context of this passage, right? Jesus, God himself, is on the way to the cross. He will be betrayed. He will be beat, beaten. He will experience injustice. He will experience mocking. He will suffer. He will die. So that those who believe in him can have hope in their suffering and strength in our struggle. He rose from the grave, he ascended into heaven, and he will come back and there will be a day, says God's word, and a promise that there will be no more suffering, no more tears, no more death, no more mourning. The old order has completely passed away. Only in Christ is that true. Only in Christ is there an eternal reality that helps us and some semblance have categories to endure this present evil age. So I ask you, what is your alternative? to the sovereignty of God in suffering. I can't find a good one. In our, our sermon discussion class at Deep End, we wrestled with uh, uh, the second question that we're not gonna go into here. But we talked about one problem that people have in application is the reconciliation of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. That is one that uh, it took a Sunday school class to introduce in a lot of um, unresolved questions uh, at the end, but we, I really want to encourage you to wrestle with that. And if you struggle, if that's holding you back, please, let's talk about it. Because it's essential, those Reformed Christians who trust the authority of Scripture, that we are able to be at peace with the total sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humanity. But for the sake of application here, I want to answer a, a third question. How do we follow God's sovereignty when we do not see his specific path. A lot of people say to me, they say, Mitchell, <laughs> I appreciate that we celebrate God's sovereignty and okay, I'll, I'll give you the whole, the whole worldview uh, interpretation of, of God's sovereignty in a world of suffering, but practically, I don't get that kind of direction. I know that we would like it. You're looking for a, a spouse. Wouldn't it be nice if Jesus said in the Bible, go down to the Alamo, you're gonna see someone carrying a jug of water on their head, follow, follow them into Starbucks, and the first person you see, bada bing, bada boom, that's your mate. Wouldn't that praise God? Yes, Lord. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice if you had a question about how to handle your finances or what to do at work or how to handle a certain relationship that Jesus gave you that kind of specificity? And oftentimes, because we don't have that kind of specificity, we give the Heisman to God's sovereignty and we just try to do things on our own. Well, here is what I want to give you uh, is just four simple categories. And when you're trying to make a decision and discern God's sovereign direction, his providence for your life, then it must align with the word of God. Now, if you came to me and said, Mitchell, I've been praying, I'm going to do a career switch. I said, really, what is it? And you said, I want to be an assassin. I would say, that's not God's will for your life. You would say, how do you know, Mitchell, that God doesn't want me to be an assassin? I would say, because thou shalt not murder, just a guess, right? God's word's explicitly clear that there's some things that are just out of bounds for a disciple. But there's lots of things in his word that we can do that, can, that are part of his mission of redemptive restoration. We're part of the priesthood of believers, and in all of life, we're, we're called to mediate the blessings of God and to reorder through the cross what's been disordered by the fall. And so we've got to discern in God's word, but we've also got to pray about it. 
It involves a personal relationship with God where if you're trying to make a decision discerning God's sovereignty in your life and the steps that he has for you, you need to have a peace inside your heart. When you're praying, if you don't have peace, that's a red flag. So it involves a personal relationship with the Lord. But third, it also involves a corporate relationship with the body. You have got to be able to have wise counsel. And I think that's one of the best assets of our congregation is that we have a generational integration. And there are so many people that long to be sounding boards, to participate in collective wisdom and decisions that you're trying to make. And then the fourth piece is, is, I promise you, where God is leading before you, he has also been working behind you. And there is a providential parade that you've just got to get into. Sometimes you need collective wisdom to help you see that. Sometimes you need the personal prayer. All the time it's in line with God's word. But those are ways that I think uh, can help empower you move through what is often the second hurdle in really uh, applying God's sovereignty to our life. Thirdly, and this is, I had a conversation with somebody about this this week. I know it's real. The third question or fourth, how can God love me? when I have not trusted him to this point and I have not believed him. I had someone ask me that this week. You see, this is exactly why Jesus was going to the cross. Jesus was completely faithful in trusting the written and revealed word of God's sovereignty because he was representing people like me who have not believed and who have not trusted. Jesus went to the cross to die, to pay the penalty for my idolatry. I've looked to other things. We've looked to other things in our life to find strength, to find hope, to find answers, to find direction, to find uh, uh, eight ball of solutions instead of God. We have worshiped things before him. And that is why Jesus came to die on the cross He took the curse so that we could have that blessing of the personal relationship so that when he rose from the grave, he's able to give the Holy Spirit our comforter and our guide. Jesus gives us freedom and forgiveness, a chance to begin again. Jesus went to die to bear the weight of our sin and he invites us in relationship with him to cast our cares upon him. Have you done that? Jesus has forgiven our sins and invites us into the freedom of his grace and love. Do you know that freedom? Jesus was betrayed so that we could be accepted and become part of his family. Jesus declared victory over suffering and death so that those who belong to him could have strength and eternal hope in our present struggle and suffering. And Jesus tells you everything is going according to plan no matter how big your questions are. He says, peace, be still. I am with you. You will have troubles in this world, but I've overcome the world. His grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in weakness. Nothing can separate you from his love. Jesus promises you, I am near. Make your request known to me. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart in Christ Jesus. Everything is going according to plan. Jesus is revealed in Revelation 21. The lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world is on the throne. And you know what he says? He says, behold, I am making all things new. Everything that is sad will not only become untrue, 
but it will be part of the fabric of the beautiful redemption that he is weaving throughout all of our struggles and our suffering. He's a lamb of God, and for us, he gives an invitation to live the life of God, trusting him. We're going to pray now, and as we do regularly, we invite people up for prayer. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to pray for us, and as I do, I'm going to ask you to be open to the stirring of the Spirit, and we'll have people up here who want to pray for you during the last song. And we just said, come pray. If you struggle with trusting God's sovereignty, if you're going through something right now where uh, you have intense pain, or if you are like my friend that I spoke with this week and you just can't believe God loves you because you've rejected him so much, then come cast your cares on the Lord in prayer. All of us can find freedom in the gospel, forgiveness for our sins, and a chance to begin again. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful picture of your sovereignty. Thank you, Lord, that you forgive us when we turn our hearts to other things of this world and trust them instead of you. Lord, we thank you that you died for us and can give us forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, that though we don't understand the mystery, you rule over all that is seen and unseen. Lord, thank you that you give us clarity and following a specific path even when we don't see the next step that's in front of us. Father, I pray that you would be pleased to open our eyes deeper to the love that you have shown in the person and work of Jesus. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would stir our hearts to come to you in prayer. We all need a chance to begin again, Lord. And we ask that you would work that in us and through us. Lord, to the end of your glory in all things, we pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.